Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from Tom Gaston on the Word of God. A few years ago, I was prompted to consider which of my favorite books by one of those silly Facebook challenges. Trying to create that list made me realize I really don't read a lot of fiction. And most of my favorite books are actually practical in nature. Maybe it's my short attention span, but it seems that I'm more likely to consider a reference book as my favorite book than any of the classics of literature. But there is also something else that became obvious from thinking about my favorite books. None of them are like the Bible. Let me tell you about some of my favorite books. First up is The Lord of the Rings. Uh, It's the only work of fiction on my list. I actually encountered The Lord of the Rings through uh, the 1981 BBC dramatization, which my parents had on cassette tape. I listened to those cassettes multiple times before I ever read the book, and it remains one of my favorite works of fiction. The book is problematic in many ways. It is overlong, the dialogue can be convoluted, and characters just burst spontaneously into song. But actually, these characteristics are all part of its charm. Tolkien didn't want to write a novel. He wanted to write mythic history. And maybe that's why it appeals to me. On the plus side, it is full of wise words. It has a strong moral focus. And the principal narrative turns on the idea that a single act of mercy can reverse the fortunes of the world. The Bible isn't like that. Whilst the Bible contains many stories, it is not itself a story. There is no central character, no single narrative arc. Whilst one can trace themes from Genesis through to Revelation, the Bible lacks a narrative structure. Indeed, given that the order of the books in our Bible differs from that of the Jewish scriptures, it would be somewhat arbitrary to expect a sequential narrative running through the Bible. This just underlines the point that the Bible is not a book. It's a library of books. It is also not a story. It is something else. The second on my list is Unto This Last, written by John Ruskin. And I brought a copy of this following a tour of his house. The title is a quote from the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where the master says to the workers, I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. And that's from Matthew 20, verse 14. This is an essay, one could hardly call it a book in its own right, that attempts to expose the essential problems with free market capitalism. The main point of the essay is that it's problematic to equate value and worth with the price that the market will bear. It interests me because I'm interested in big ideas of philosophy and politics, But it's one of my favourites because of the eloquence with which it is written and the intellectual incisiveness with which it diagnoses the flaw at the heart of capitalism. Plus, it's short. The Bible isn't like that either. The Bible isn't a single treatise on a core topic. It isn't even a collection of essays bound together in a single volume. There are bits of the Bible that focus on a specific topic for a while. Romans devotes a lot of space to the question of how Jews and Gentiles can both be the people of God. Hebrews focuses on the new covenant and how that's better than the old. 
But most of the Bible isn't like that. There are plenty of really important topics that we might like addressed in a concentrated form that aren't addressed that way in the Bible. The third book I'd like to introduce is the Flavor Thesaurus. This is a brilliant book for any creative cook. If you like to cook from recipes, this book isn't for you. But I don't like to cook that way. I quite often just like to take what we have and make something up. And this book is perfect for that. What it does is it matches up ingredients with other ingredients that complement it. So you can pick, let's say, eggs, and you'll get a list of ingredients and flavors that work well with eggs, and so build up a new recipe that way. Like any thesaurus, this isn't a book that you read cover to cover. Well, I suppose you might, but it's not intended to be read that way. This is a reference book, something that you look into when you're looking for something specific. It's a really interesting way of exploring food, developing new ideas and gaining new information. And the Bible isn't like this either. I don't mean to say just that the Bible isn't a recipe book. I mean that it isn't a book where you match topics together or find easy connections between two different ideas. The Bible isn't structured in a way to allow you to just start at one topic and, and then match it up with other topics. The Bible itself has no reference section or index or key. And that might sound like an obvious point, but just think how useful that would be. The very fact that we have created concordances and dictionaries and study Bibles to help us navigate the Bible highlights the fact that the Bible itself isn't structured in that way. The Bible isn't a reference book. Those are just three examples. Books that I happen to like, or at least find useful, but are books that are also nothing like the Bible. And you might think, so what? After all, the Bible never claims to be a novel or an essay or a reference book, so what's the problem? The point is that these three books that I have cited are accessible. In different ways and for different things, but they are each accessible for the purpose they are trying to achieve. And the Bible isn't like any one of them. The Bible is actually quite unique in that it is a library of books from many different genres and styles and structures, from different authors and centuries and contexts. And all of that complexity and diversity is wonderful, but does it make it accessible? Does the Bible make it easy to find answers to life's big questions? Does it make it easy to find moral guidance? Does it make it easy to build and strengthen your relationship with God? Or actually, is the Bible often seemingly inaccessible, irrelevant, or even sometimes boring? What I want to suggest is that the Bible needs a key to help unlock it. It needs a lens to bring it into focus. It needs a compass by which to orientate yourself in it. And if you can't guess, I'm going to suggest that key is Jesus. If you were to look at the phrase, the word of God in the Bible, and the synonymous phrase, the word of the Lord, you'll discover something interesting. There is no unequivocal usage of the phrase, word of God, to refer to the Bible itself. The collected scriptures are never called the word of God in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the word of the Lord, is primarily used of the message received and conveyed by the prophet. 
e.g. the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. But never, it seems, of the scriptures in general. In the New Testament, the phrase the word of God is used primarily of the gospel message. For example, Luke describes Jesus as teaching the word of God. In Acts, we find the Gentiles receiving and accepting the word of God and so on. But as in the Old Testament, the phrase the word of God is never unequivocally used of the written word. It's never used of the scriptures themselves. Now, obviously, the Bible contains both the prophetic messages and the gospel message. So the Bible contains the word of God in both those senses. Therefore, you might think this is a purely semantic distinction to say that the Bible itself is not called the word of God. If the Bible conveys the word of God, does it matter that it's not explicitly called that? Well, I I think it does matter. Calling the Bible the word of God might give the impression that it is the words that are important, that the written text has authority. But if we follow the biblical usage, then it is the message that is the word of God. What is the true revelation of God? Is it the written text or is it the message that those texts contain? Yet whilst the Bible never calls the Bible the Word of God, there is one in the Scriptures who is called the Word of God, and that is Jesus. Revelation 19. I saw the heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This passage seems to describe the second coming of Jesus. Remember, all of this is symbolic, so let's not get hung up on literal flying horses. This isn't about describing what will actually happen when Christ returns. It is showing us the symbolic significance of those events. This writer has many names. He is faithful and true. He has a name that no one knows but himself. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But importantly for our purposes, he is named the Word of God. Some commentators make a connection here between Hebrews 4, where the word of God is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword, perhaps like the sword that comes out of Christ's mouth in Revelation. In doing so, they would see overtones of the judgment in both passages. But I think there is something bigger going on here. This is the author of Revelation laying out the qualifications of this rider. He has many crowns, he has a secret name, his robes are dipped in blood, and he is also the word of God. This is the authority of the coming king, the authority of the one to whom judgment is committed. He is the very word of God. To unpick that a bit further, I think we need to go to John chapter 1. Here we find the word, the logos, 
who was with God in the beginning and was God. We sometimes get hung up on this chapter because it is a favoured proof text of Trinitarians, but it is not actually a Trinitarian text at all. In fact, the first part of this chapter says nothing that a first century Jew would disagree with. First century Jews would have known about the figure of wisdom from Proverbs and would have known about such books in the period between the Testaments where wisdom was called word. Such a Jew would agree that wisdom was with God in the beginning, would agree that all things were created through wisdom. Such a Jew would have seen wisdom as dwelling with the Israelites in the wilderness, being embodied in the law and the prophets. The controversial bit comes in verse 14, where the word becomes flesh, becomes manifest in the person of Jesus. That bit was going too far. But as John explains what he's on about in verse 18, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. The word makes God known. Just as our speech reveals things about us, Jesus makes God known. Jesus is the way that God declares himself to us. And if John 1 feels a bit too abstract for your tastes, John makes this same point another way later in his gospel. In chapter 14, he writes, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus says that to know him is to know the Father. If you want to know about God, you just have to get to know Jesus. In fact, Philip does want to know more. He says, verse 8 of this chapter, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus replies, do you not know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says that Philip has already everything that he needs. He doesn't need to be shown the Father because he knows Jesus. The same point is made throughout John's Gospel. The Son manifests the Father. Traditionally, Christadelphians have used the language of theophany, of God-manifestation, to try and explain those passages which describe a high level of divinity to Jesus. Sometimes that language can sound a bit technical or abstract because who talks about manifestation in everyday English? But manifestation just means showing. And the answer to Philip's question tells us all we need to know about the topic of theophany. Jesus shows us God. This is what I think it means for Jesus to be the word of God. He is God's final and perfect revelation. Jesus is the one who makes God known. John says no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus has made him known. And if that is true of Jesus as the word of God, then he takes precedence over every other revelation, over every other prophet, takes precedence over the scriptures themselves. Jesus takes the crown as God's most perfect revelation. And it may sound peculiar to put it in those terms, to think of one taking precedent over the other, but it is surely not disputable that that is the case, that Jesus should come first above all others. 
And because Jesus is God's ultimate revelation, then Jesus can be for us that key to help us understand the scriptures. At this point, someone might raise an obvious objection, which is, since almost everything we know about Jesus comes to us from the Bible, how can Jesus have priority over the scriptures? It could be argued that the scriptures must have priority because they are our primary source of information about Jesus. And of course, that much is true. There's only a small amount of historical information about Jesus outside the New Testament. So we are dependent upon the Bible itself for our information about what Jesus did and said and who he was and is. We need the Bible to tell us about Jesus. But I would make three points by way of response. Firstly, whilst it is true that the scriptures are our source of information about Jesus, there's much else in the Bible besides. The Bible was written by many different authors who wrote at different times in different contexts and for different reasons. The Bible speaks with and through many voices. To properly do justice to what the Bible has to say, we have to recognise those different voices and those differing messages. For example, Deuteronomy says that there are blessings for the righteous and curses for the wicked. The first psalm says that the righteous will prosper whilst the wicked will perish. But also, Ecclesiastes says time and chance happen to us all. The book of Job argues that not all suffering is a punishment for wickedness. And Jesus says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. All these messages and others besides are written within the Bible. And on the face of it, they might appear contradictory. Anyone reading the Bible has to find a way to make sense of those different voices and to do justice to what they are saying. The most appropriate way, and this should not be a controversial point for Christians, is to understand those different voices through Jesus. Secondly, Whilst what we know about Jesus comes through the Bible, there's always a difference between focusing on the person of Jesus and focusing on the scriptural record about Jesus. Traditionally, Christadelphians have put a lot of emphasis on the significance of individual words, seeing each and every word as having some special significance. I see a danger in that, partly because it treats the Bible as a sort of code that needs to be deciphered, and thereby implies that what God is interested in is people who can crack that code. And that, at best, is misleading. Also, I think there's a danger that overemphasizing the significance of words and the meanings of words obscures the person and character of Jesus, which is where I see the true revelation of God. The compassion of Jesus for example, shines through the gospel records. We don't need to over-examine uh, what words are used to express that in those narratives. The truth of Jesus' character is evident. We don't need a statement or a command to saying, act in compassionate ways. We have the very character of Jesus to follow. And this should have very obvious implications for how we should live and think and how we should read the rest of the Bible. If Jesus was, is, compassionate, and if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, then we should also be 
compassionate. And we should read the Bible looking for that aspect of God's character throughout the text. Thirdly, whilst it is true that most of what we know about the first century Jesus is contained within the New Testament, I think we need to be open to the living Lord Jesus today. Jesus said, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And Jesus said, Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And there are other passages we could cite, but I won't. The point is that the New Testament is clear that Jesus is alive and available today. And we need to be open to what that might mean for us, including the possibility that it might influence the way we read the scriptures. And if that sounds incredibly difficult and challenging, well, good. It is. But I don't think it's something we can ignore. What does any of this mean? What does it mean to interpret the Bible with Jesus as our key? Let us take one passage as a test case. This is what Deuteronomy says about war. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people shall be subject to forced labour and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Let me briefly summarise what Deuteronomy is saying. The passage presupposes that the nation of Israel will have enemies that they want to attack. This is not a commandment about self-defence or the last resort when diplomatic means have ended. This is not about occupying the land of Canaan. Different rules apply there. This passage is about attacking a city because you want to conquer it. When the Israelites have decided that they want to conquer that city, well, the people already living there have a choice. They can either be enslaved or they can be attacked. If the Israelites attacked then the city was captured and all the men were to be killed. But everything else in that city, the women and the children, were to be plunder for the Israelites. Let's repeat that. The women and children were plunder. They were property to be taken away and kept and used. The next chapter in Deuteronomy goes on to say that if an Israelite is attracted to one of the women he has taken as his plunder, then he could marry them. Of course, the woman doesn't 
get a say in the matter. And after being married, that is, if he decides he doesn't like her after all, he can just send her away. But there's one big exception to all of this, and that's those nations already dwelling in the land of Canaan. In those cases, you don't offer them peace or enslave the women and children. Instead, everything that breathes, the text says, is to be killed. Now, passages like this are really, really challenging. They're really hard to deal with. However, I don't think we should tuck them under the carpet or ignore them, pretend like they're not challenging. I don't think we should make simplistic excuses for them either, saying, well, maybe ta being taken as captive and treated as plunder isn't as bad as it sounds. The truth is we don't agree with this sort of behaviour. We think this sort of behaviour is wrong, unequivocally wrong. If I told you about a group of people that were going around, attacking cities, killing all the men and taking everyone else as slaves, you'd probably assume I was talking about ISIS or some other terrorist group. Yet here, in Deuteronomy, this behaviour is permitted as part of the scriptures. One of the reasons, arguably the biggest reason, we don't agree with this sort of behaviour as described in Deuteronomy is because of Jesus. He models a better standard of behaviour. Can you imagine the one who said those who will live by the sword will die by the sword, advocating war and conquest against neighbouring cities? Can you imagine the one who said that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives, advocating that an entire city be put to slavery? Can you imagine the one who said love your enemies, advocating the massacre of every male resident of a city, even an enemy city? Can you imagine the one who took women as his disciples, as some of his closest followers? Can you imagine him advocating the forced marriage of women whose husbands had just been slain in battle? Can you imagine the one who drew little children to him, the one who said that if anyone causes a child to stumble, it would be better if they had a millstone tied round their neck and thrown into the sea. Can you imagine him advocating the slavery of children captured in war? Can you imagine the one who found faith amongst the Gentiles, greater than he, even he found in Israel, advocating the indiscriminate slaughter of entire nations? The truth is we, we can't imagine Jesus doing any of those things. That's not the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. And you might say, yes, but what about the second coming? There's going to be some warfare then, right? At the beginning, we referred to Revelation 19, Christ riding on the white horse. That's a very different sight of Jesus, right? Well, look again. This is a book of symbol. If Jesus isn't going to be riding a literal horse at the second coming, why do we think that the sword or the battle are literal either? But look at what the text actually says. Yes, the white rider 
has his robes dipped in blood. But that's before the battle. So whose blood is it? Not the blood of his enemies. The blood is his own. The blood of the lamb who was slain. This is how Jesus conquers. Not through the shedding of the blood of others, but the conquest made in his own blood. And what about that sword? He is not wielding that sword in his hand. But the sword is coming out of his mouth. This is the one who conquers by his words. Yes, there is a judgment coming. Yes, Jesus means to change this world. But that coming king and judge is the same Jesus who called the little children to him and wept for those who suffered. So what do we do with a book like the Bible? What do we do with a book that speaks with many voices about God? What do we do with a book, a library of books, that says some things that we would never do and cannot agree with? I know that might sound stark. It might sound challenging to present a, such a dramatic contrast between passages in the Old Testament and the person of Jesus. But whilst it is challenging, I think it's a challenge we're already aware of. And in some sense, have already found a way to live with. Because I suspect that none of you advocate the forced slavery of entire cities or the forced marriage of those who've been enslaved. You already give Jesus, the word of God, the preeminence in the way you live out your faith and the way you read your Bible. The solution, or at least part of the solution to making sense of the Bible, is to acknowledge that Jesus is the Word of God, the final revelation of God, the truest revelation of God. The solution is to read the Scriptures through the lens of Christ, to read the Scriptures as being on a trajectory that points to Christ. War, and conquest are not okay. These are not things Christians should aspire to. But the Israelites, as described in Deuteronomy, adopt limits on some of the excesses of war that move them beyond the morality of their own day. If you wanted to capture an enemy city, well, you had to offer them terms of peace first. If you captured a city... The civilians, the women and children, were to be protected and not killed. If you took one of those captured women as a wife, you had to allow her a full month first to grieve her former life. And if you divorced her, she did not return to slavery. But now she was free. These positive aspects do not legitimise the moral standards found in Deuteronomy. But they do point upwards to a higher standard, where peace is preferred to war, where life, even the life of your enemy, is valued, where it is recognised that even your worst enemy will be touched by grief and sorrow, where a woman, even a, a captive woman, 
has certain rights that are to be respected. Whilst Deuteronomy points us towards that higher standard, it hasn't reached that level yet. Jesus had not yet been revealed. But reading these passages in the light of Jesus, we can see that upward trajectory from barbarity and inhumanity towards the true character of God as expressed in Jesus. The Bible doesn't speak with one voice. The Bible isn't all the same, but read through the lens of Jesus, we can see a progression upwards towards the full glory of God. So, the Bible isn't like a novel. The Bible isn't like an essay or treatise. The Bible isn't like a reference book. The Bible is actually difficult. We need to think about what we expect the Bible to be and maybe lay those expectations aside and let the Bible be what it is. But the Bible isn't the only way that God speaks to us. We have a revelation that is accessible, that does speak to us, that is alive. We have the word of God, Jesus Christ. Setting our focus on Jesus can help us make sense of the rest. So as we come to remember our living Lord Jesus in bread and wine, and think about the love, mercy and forgiveness evident in those symbols, we thank God for the way that he has made himself manifest to us through Jesus. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this article by Tom Gaston. For more, you can visit pressonjournal.org.